want us to turn to Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 15 this morning. Look there with me. Good understanding, excuse me, uh, the wrong chapter. I'm new Bible and you have to get reoriented with it. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. A fool's wrath is presently known, but a prudent man covereth shame. He that speaketh truth showeth forth righteousness, but a false witness deceit. There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. The lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but to the counselors of peace is joy. There shall no evil happen to the just, but the wicked shall be filled with mischief. Lying lips are abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. A prudent man concealeth knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaimeth foolishness. The hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be unto tribute. Heaviness in the heart of man bringeth it to stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. The righteous is more excellent than his neighbor, but the way of the wicked seduceth them. The slothful man roasteth not with that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. In the way of righteousness is life, and in the pathway thereof there is no death. We see here the Proverbs is teaching about the sensible man and his words. A sensible man will listen to godly counsel. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death, the Bible tells us. The Bible teaches us, over and over again in various ways, to lean not into our own understanding. Why is that? Because our natural understanding, apart from help with the Lord, is flawed, is often one-sided. We see it from just our perspective instead of the various perspectives that the Lord has for us. Trust in the Lord, the Bible says. He will direct your steps. Now, a fool is very sure of himself, whether he really should be or not. He, he's very sure of himself, but a wise man never is. A wise man knows he's never attained, he's never arrived, that, that he learns from his mistakes, but a fool never does. In fact, a fool rarely sees his mistakes as that. He'll call them anything but. And uh, he uh, has a, a mask or blinders on over his eyes to see his own ways. James chapter 4 tells us about the foolish and the presumptuous man who... Those who fail to to figure the Lord into their plans. They have a plan, a life plan. They have an equation. And they have everything but the Lord in that plan. He, there in James 4, describes a man who says, We're going to such and such a city for a year or so. And we're going to make this amount of money. And so on and so forth. A good business plan. And there's nothing wrong with that. But James says there's something wrong here. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or do that. But now you rejoice in your boastings, and all such rejoicing is evil. And so he's very clear about what he should do and how he should approach the matter and how he should look at it. Therefore, in James 4 and verse 17, him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. 
the fool that labors under the delusion that he is always right, that he uh, has sees things clearly without any help or divine enablement, that he, the fool looks for, for and asks and listens uh, just to what he wants to, but the wise person seeks counsel. He listens to godly advice. He wants to hear from others who've been down the way, who have life experience far beyond his. Now, this, the Bible says here in verse 16, a fool's wrath is presently known, but a prudent man covereth shame. Now that word covereth, the translated covereth, is from the, the Hebrew word that means conceals. And so the prudent man's compassion is opposite to, to a fool's public rage. One thing that marks a fool is his display of anger. Uh, the Bible says a lot about an angry man. Make no friends with an angry man. One thing that marks a, a fool is his anger. It's uncontrolled. It is not uh, dealt with in a biblical way. Shimei was a fool. Dr. Alexander White calls him a reptile in the royal house of Saul. In 1 Kings chapter 2, David gave him a stay of execution, but he knew Shimei could not be trusted. He knew he was one of those people that he could not trust. And when David handed the kingdom over to his son Solomon, he advised his son to execute Shimei. Solomon, in turn, told Shimei to build himself a house in Jerusalem and go and live there and not go anywhere else. So Solomon did not follow his father David's advice. He thought, like so often, I'll, uh, I'll handle it in this way. Now, you go and build your house and, and stay there and don't go anywhere else and don't do anything else. He warned Shimei, if you leave from those confines, you will surely be put to death. And for a while, Shimei was subdued, and he kept to himself, acting like a good law-abiding citizen. After all, he'd been given a reprieve. He built his house. He stayed there somewhat under house arrest. But hey, house arrest is better than execution any day, especially in that day and time when the king had absolute authority and control. But he despised his house arrest, as we can imagine anybody would. And so he was so cruel, two of his servants ran away, willing to serve a pagan king instead of living under him. So that gives you just a little insight to what kind of person Shimei was. These, these two servants would rather go serve a pagan king than this uh, so-called Jewish man who should have known the Lord. And they went to serve the, the pagan king Achish of Gath rather than to endure Shimei's meanness. So that shows you why David said what he did about him and why Solomon gave him such severe warning. Of course... Shimei was furious that anybody would dare turn against him and not want to be his servant. Why wouldn't you want to be my servant? It ought to be a privilege. And he went to bring them back. Did you hear what I said? He left his house arrest to go and bring these two wandering servants back. Solomon learned of this. Remember what Solomon said. My dad has, and I'm paraphrasing here, told me to execute you, but I'm going to let you live as long as you stay in your house and do not leave. And I've warned you, and when he learned of his high-handed rebellion, he said, in effect, you know all the wickedness you did to my father David and would do now if you could to me. So may the Lord return your wickedness back on you. If Shimei had been a wise man, we're talking about wisdom here in Proverbs chapter 12. If he'd been a wise man, he would have left his servants alone and stayed where he was, where he was supposed to stay. It might not have been the best situation, but it was better than the alternative under the circumstances, which were, after all, unusual, weren't they? 
if he would have allowed the miracle of grace to transform his heart, let's look at it this way. He could have been and should have been put to death, but he was spared. And so even though his circumstances may have been less than than, uh, what you would have chosen, he was alive. He had some freedom and he was spared. But a fool never sees the grace of God, never sees the blessings of God. They're always looking at how they've been spurned or hurt or or, uh, given the wrong end of the stick and so forth. And so in time to come, his sin might have been forgotten by Solomon and things might have been uh, eased out. If nothing less, he could have had a long life. But Shimei resented David and Solomon and grace and goodness. You see, an unrepentant heart always does that. It just sees the negative, the wrong. And his, his temper, his foul tongue controlled him. He could not cover his lack of compassion and for his servants. And so he, he could not cover his own shame. And at Solomon's orders, Shimei was executed. Well, it's interesting. I, I have in my notes here a question. It may seem a little out of the line here, but every time I hear that story, I always think, how do we treat those who can do nothing for us in return? That really shows the kind of people we are, the least of these, those who, who can't invite us back or do something in return uh, for, for our kindness. And so Shimei was not a wise man. He was the opposite of that. And the Lord records his life and his doings in the Scripture for many illustrations, but it seems appropriate to illustrate what we're talking about here. Proverbs has much to say about our words. I mean, hardly a chapter, in in almost every verse it seems, I'm I'm being a little bit broad there, but over and over again you see that recurring theme of our words, the tongue of the wise, the words, uh, how our words should be few and so forth. And why is that? Well, because we are... Uh, the only ones of God's creation uh, on, this, on this earth who can talk. We've been given the gift of language. Have you thought about that? This wonderful opportunity to tell and to express, to praise and to pray, primarily to communicate with our Heavenly Father. He's communicated to us with words written and oral. And he's given us this wonderful ability to be able to communicate. And yet, nothing gets us in more trouble than our words. What a great privilege it is. How easy it, it makes life to be able to talk and to discuss things. So often we, we say, I don't know if you're about like me, but I really detest. I use them, but I detest the drive-through things because it usually never works out like I, they never hear or, or they never hear. And especially, it seems, at the bank. <laughs> I mean, you can learn a lot of information at the bank that you don't want to learn by the person in front of you. You know, you can hear all kinds of things coming. You're overdrawn, Mr. Jones, and, or, or whatever. So uh, there are a lot of reasons I don't like to use the, the drive through But the order, you know, sometimes just seeing the person's face and seeing their mouth and their words helps us get a, a point, our point across. And especially when there's strange situations, it's best to sit down if we can and talk with people because you can see a lot just by not the, the, the word itself, but the tone and the expression and how a person comes across. Verse 17 tells us, He that speaketh truth showeth forth righteousness, but a false witness deceit. You know, we can tell a lot about our words, and probably no other member of our body gets us into more trouble than our tongue. The tongue can be sharp, it can be painful abusive in its power, as well as having the power to explain and to edify and exalt. I mean, it's, it's all across 
the board, you know, of human emotion and experience what the tongue can do. Imagine that we are all in a courtroom. The judge is on the bench. There's nothing more serious than that, is it? Especially if you're sitting in the, the seat of judgment. The prisoner is before, uh, the, before the judge. Witnesses are summoned to testify. We've been through the whole trial. Attorneys probe for the truth. But even after being sworn to tell the truth and before God, we know that, that, that things have been skewed and the tr- all the truth probably has not come out. The greatest illustration of lying in a, in a courtroom is the, the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it was anything but a just trial. He stood before the Sanhedrin, the, the Supreme Court of Israel, and then uh, Simon Greenleaf was, was dean of, of Harvard Law School, and in fact, his influence helped to elevate it to its eminent place among all the law schools. If you say someone has a degree from Harvard Law School, it's supposed to mean they really, they really are vetted. But he wrote a textbook, a treatise on the, lawful, on the law of evidence, published through 12 editions almost uh, every two years. This book is, is a classic. When he was 63 years old, uh, Simon Greenleaf, this esteemed uh, uh, legal expert, published a book in which he examined the trial of Jesus. And that book, you, I'm not, I don't have it in my library, but you might can find it. It's entitled, The Testimony of the Evangelist, Examined by the Rules of Evidence Administered in the Courts of Justice. A long title. But in the preface, he writes, It is not possible for the writ of man to invent a story which, if closely compared with the actual occurrences of the same time and place, may not be shown to be false. Hence it is that a false witness will not willingly detail any circumstances in which his testimony will be open to contradiction, nor multiply them where there is danger of his being detected by a comparison of them with other accounts equally circumstantial. He will rather deal in general statements and broad assertions And if he finds it necessary for his purpose to employ names and and particular circumstances in his story, he will endeavor to invent such as shall be out of the reach of all opposing proof, and he will be most forward and minute in details where he knows that any danger of contradiction is at least apprehended. Therefore, it is that variety and minuteness of detail are usually regarded as certain tests of sincerity if the story and the circumstances related is of a nature capable of any easy refutation if it were false. Then he goes on in his book to show the absolute credibility of Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, the the gospel writers, in the record of Jesus' life and the astounding claims of Jesus himself. Their testimony this legal expert says, could stand up against the most grueling cross-examining in any court of law. Paul declared in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, with all surety, he said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. In other words, this is indisputable that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And J.B. Phillips' translation reads, this statement is completely reliable and should be universally accepted. Christ Jesus entered the world to rescue sinners. Truly, he that speaketh truth showeth forth righteousness, but a false witness deceit. Well, we should be people of truth. 
and we should earn, uh, uh, des desire to be earnest and sincere and truthful in all that we say. In verse 18, there, there tells us about piercing words. Look there, there is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. You have two different pictures here. The stabbing of a sword, which is meant to kill, to bleed someone to death, a horrible wound. And the tongue of the wise is being healing or helpful. So the same, same device, the tongue, the words of a, of, of a person can either be like a sword or they can be like medicine, two opposite ends of the spectrum. We must always strive to choose our words carefully. And why is it that we're rash with our words when we have so many available to us? Even though you may have a limited vocabulary, there are various ways to say anything. Sometimes uh, others are, are hanging on our very words, and uh, the, the sincerest of us can come across in a way that, that should not be. I think men have a problem with this. I'm not being excusing here, but sometimes uh, in our presentation of something, it may seem forceful or the... the uh, because of our dealings with one another, when we say something, we say it with feeling and emotion and, and, and admonition. And sometimes when our wives or children hear that, it may come across as being uh, harsh, and that's not the intent at all. You know, we're just putting our, our sincerity behind it. This is what I mean. This is what I feel. As a husband and as a father, I've had that pointed out to me. I'm speaking from experience. You know, I was raised in a family where we all expressed ourselves very openly. And uh, you have to really, my wife said the first time she visited the Lamb home on a Sunday dinner, to, to even get a word in edgewise, you had to really almost be like a lawyer and know how to do it. I mean, we just were very active in our conversation. And with a lot of emotion, uh, discussing whether it's our views or politics or whatever it is. And so... Um, and also, when you say something, you had to get in there or you wouldn't be heard, you know. And so with all of that, at least that's my excuse, that came into my marriage. And uh, I had to, to realize that the tone of voice is as important as what I'm saying. You know, you can say kind words in a harsh tone and they don't get the point. You know, you know I love you didn't come out in, in that. So uh, we have to be careful about that. And so I, some, for, for a while there, I would kind of say, well, that's just my wife. That's just, you know, women. But my children, when they got to be teenagers, one time I was expressing a view to one of my children, and they bravely said, you know, Dad, Mom's right. You're saying the right thing, but the way you're saying it comes across, is coming across very harshly. Well, it was one of those light bulb moments in my, my I examined. Honestly, from my perspective, it was not meant to be that way, but it was being heard. And so if it's not being, what you're saying is not being heard the way you want it to be heard, you've, you're not being heard, and the situation is not being dealt with as it should be. Well, the Bible tells us we should be careful about the choice of words and even how we say them. Preachers and Sunday school teachers labor under this mighty truth of how to get across the truth of the gospel. But you and I, in our interpersonal relationships and in one-on-one -on -one conversations, our words can pierce like a stabbing sword and, or give health to troubled ears and hearts. Uh, I remember one day talking to a woman, and I was uh, summoned at, at the, the bedside of this dear lady this, uh, who was obviously on the threshold of, being, of crossing over to the other side and uh, of going home to be with the Lord. 
And her words, the last words that she wanted uh, to hear and wanted to say and to convey were so important. And I thought, and in that room there were, and I'm, I'm trying to convey this in the best way I can, some loved ones who didn't see what was going on at the time. And some of the words that were being said there were the last that needed to be said in that place. But may our words be wise and helpful and appropriate and healthful and never stabbing, never piercing uh, swords or cutting or hurting or maiming. Well, verse 19 speaks of not only 18 speaks of piercing words. Verse 19 speaks of permanent words. Look there. The lip of truth shall be established forever. My what a statement. The lip of truth, or the words of truth, will be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Even the most elaborately constructed lie will fall apart in the end. The truth will come out. Will you say, I know of people who've lied and gotten by with it and haven't been found out yet. It's not the end yet. It will come out. That's why we ought to be careful to be truthful and to make things right as we can because God will reveal all things. Lies carry their own seeds for destruction, though, don't they? Just think about it. If something's not true. I think it was John Adams that said that the truth, facts are stubborn things. The truth is a stubborn thing. It always stands up, even though people might try to mask it or hide it. At some point, the truth will come out. But, but lies carry with them in that pod you know, I was out playing with a granddaughter the other day. We were blowing dandelions, you know, and seeing them like little parachutes going across. And I was thinking, well, I'm just, I'm helping to, to propagate dandelions all over the yard. This one will now become a thousand, you know. I was, that's how the Lord determined, uh, helped them. But they were, every time we did that, we were just making more future ones, I'm sure. But in that seed, if you call it that, it has built into it the seeds of destruction. And, and a lie has, carries within it the seeds of, of destruction. They seem to be convenient refuge for the moment, but they ultimately will fall apart. We live in enemy territory as believers down here below, where this world is not uh, conducted by the laws of heaven as it should be. It will be one day, but right now it is not. And we, we live in this, this enemy territory where lies are part of the world system. That's how business is done. It's not right. Uh, that's why our Lord, when he prayed, he said, I, I pray that you not remove them from the world, but help them not to be of the world. We don't, even though that's the system, we're not to be conformed to it. We're not to live under the same uh, mode, mode of operation as the world does. Uh, but uh, where, the, where lies are part of the world system. But, but remember where they come from. Always remember the source of something or try to find out the source of it. Our Lord Jesus tells us very clearly where all lies come from. All lies come from Satan. Lies will ultimately ensnare us, and they will be judged and will be found out. Ultimate truth is found in the Bible. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 17, Thy word is truth. What a powerful statement. It covers everything. Your, this book is absolutely trustworthy. Whatever it says about anything is true. And you will find out, even if not now, in eternity it is true. There are statements in the scripture that science did not come up with for years after the fact. And Leviticus tells us the life of the flesh is in the blood. It was hundreds and hundreds of years before men found out about circulation and that, that the blood was the very life of the body. 
In fact, up into the 1700s, they would, they would bleed people when they got sick, you know, thinking that uh, that would get them well. And uh, we could talk about the earth being a circle. The scripture talks about the, the circle of the earth and the paths of the sea. Do you realize the sea does have paths? But oceanographers and, and scientists did not discover that to years and years and years after the Bible stated those things. And so we'll find out that, that science and technology will ultimately catch up with the Bible when Scripture reveals all things as they are one day. But, but Jesus said, thy word is truth. So you can count on it. You can, you can base your heart and your life and your soul upon it. Jesus is the truth. In verses 20 through 21 tells us about profound words. Sometimes we read, uh, there are certain words that, that stand out in our memory. Probably uh, in this last century, some, the words from the inaugural address of John F. Kennedy are often quoted. That's not what you can do for your country, but what, you, uh, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Or, uh, uh, you know, down through uh, year, there, there are quotable quotes, quotes that uh, whether it's, uh, Abraham Lincoln's simple words there, his Gettysburg Address, the opening words to the Declaration of Independence are just uh, quips or quotes down through the years. There are, there are words that are profound. They, they stand the test of time, and they are, are profound words. Verse 20 says, Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but to the counselors of peace is joy. There shall no evil happen to the just, but the wicked shall be filled with mischief. Now, profound words are words that uh, words give peace in the face of evil. There is the, an interesting contrast between Abner, King Saul's uh, general, and Joab, David's general. Abner promoted the wrong cause, but was basically a decent man. And Joab promoted the right uh, cause, but was essentially a wicked man. Their story is, is outlined there in 2 Samuel chapter 3. For, for example, Joab accused Abner of deceit when, him, when he himself was the deceitful one. That is often the case. See, as we see in others our worst faults, we can do the right thing in the wrong way. We're, we're never to use deceit to do the right thing, although that's what we're, we're tempted to do even as believers one day. Sometimes we're, we're, we're uh, tempted to do that. Verse 21 tells us that profound words give protection in the face of evil. The first part of the verse can be fair, paraphrased, and I know when I read that, there shall no evil happen to the just. Your, your antennas went up and said, oh, Brother Lamb, that can't be true. I know a lot of good people, justified people, that bad things happen to. How could you say such a thing? Well, the first part of that verse, there shall no evil happen to the just, can be paraphrased, nothing happens in vain to the just. God has always takes the long-range view. When we see something, we see it just from our span of time or just from our perspective, where we are through these eyes. But you see, God has all-seeing eyes. He sees it from every direction, from every aspect, and from every time frame. Totally beyond, uh, from every spectrum, God sees every event in that perspective. You see, if you come and, and knock me in the face, for example, all I can see is your fist hit my face, and it's, uh, you know, I'm hurting and you're wrong. And uh, I don't have the opportunity to see, have a camera from every angle. I read the other day that the future of motion picture is that they will be filming um, 
uh, set from every possible ang- angle, and that at some point you will have t- total interactive ability to watch that scene from all every angle instead of just the angle presented to you. Does that make any, I know I'm, I'm going, I don't understand all those things, but it was talking about in the future of technology what it was going to be like. Well, God can see every situation from every angle. All I saw is your fist come from the side and hit me against the face. I may not have seen that you tripped over the step and you were coming my direction and hit me not intentionally. You know, all I know is I looked up as your fist was coming at me and, uh, and, and giving me the black eye. But I did not have the, the wherewithal to see every, from every angle and every possible situation that, that took place. We tend to be preoccupied with the short-reign short view. And the proverb seems uh, too optimistic to us, you know. But, and some say this verse isn't true. And I've already refuted, I've already given that angle that I know good, bad things happen to good people. But God plans for forever, for the long haul. And he speaks from, when he speaks in the scripture, you must know these statements, these truths are from eternal perspective from heaven's banister, from the judge of all the earth who can only do that which is right. You see, we're elevating it from here to there and from a time and space perspective that is not available to us right now. He sees uh, and speaks from this viewpoint from up there uh, on the Mount of Omniscience, something you and I don't have the privilege of, of, of doing. We don't have all knowledge. We don't have all wisdom. Even hell itself has no significance for the redeemed. Its evil and its torments will never touch one of the elect of Christ, ever. Nothing could be worse than the thought of a loved one banished forever in a lost eternity. While that's a most unpleasant thought on this beautiful Lord's Day, it is an eternal fact that there will be people who perish in eternity in hell away from God. We in this present world are bound by time and limitations of our morality and our human um, makeup. All that happens to us here on earth will take on a new and glorious significance in heaven. The moment you awake in glory, when you pass from this veil to that veil, you will sense that, that and, and, and have a perspective on things unlike you've been able to have here. I will never say that we will, we will never be on the level of God. We will never be able to see uh, all things as God does, as miraculous as our glorified bodies will be. But we will certainly have a more enlightened, eternal perspective on why things happened to us when they did. And as you look back across your life and you point your finger to that day, that time, and, and, and as some of you, when I said that, a very painful thought comes to mind, and Satan would point to it and say, there's a God in heaven, a God of love, why would he allow that to happen there then to that person? We're going to study this morning, the Lord willing, about uh, uh, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, and a very horrible situation that happened. And we would have to say, from a human perspective, how can you say that no good thing, no, as the scripture says there, there shall no evil happen to the just. But all that happens here on earth will take on a new and a glorious significance in heaven, we will see that everything that happened on earth was for our eternal good, not just our earthly, temporary experience. You see, we see everything in light of how I feel in my life right now, today, 
or this next 40 years or the 90-year span of time or whatever, I'll be here. But God sees you and me as an immortal soul. And everything that allow, is allowed to take place in this span of time here on this earth is for our eternal good, not just for our pleasant uh, enjoyment or satisfaction or ease. Now, even having that knowledge does not help ease the pain or the agony of a bad situation. And I'll, I'll not at all intimate that. But we'll see that one day that everything that happened on earth was for our eternal good and his eternal glory. As the songwriter Charles Tinley puts it, trials dark on every hand, and we cannot understand all the ways that God would lead us to that blessed promised land. But he'll guide us with his eye, and we'll follow till we die. We will understand it better by and by. Now, that's a simple way that help us to sing ourselves through the pain and the heartache that we may be experiencing it today. Child of God, you will understand it better by and by. By and by when the morning comes, when the saints of God are gathered home, we will tell the story of how we've overcome. We will understand it better by and by. But the wicked will have no such promise. I think the wicked in hell, as we see in the, the, our Lord's teaching, there in Luke chapter 15 about the rich man who went to hell, he has his senses, doesn't he? He feels pain. He feels horrible pain. He has sensation. He has perception. His mind is not gone. I think one of the things that, that uh, some people may think about, well, if I don't know about it, but there will be absolute mental perception uh, in hell. I was reading yesterday of an article of a man who had lost uh, from multiple, multiple sclerosis uh, all usage of his body from his neck down. He was a writer, uh, and he was telling what it was like uh, to be in that situation where you, you he, he said he had read before he had become that way that it was like being petrified or being encased in, in a case of iron, he said, it's not like that at all. He said, it's like you tell your limb what to do, and it just absolutely doesn't obey. It's like you're sitting there and you tell your cat on the couch to go, you know, the next room or give it an order, and it just absolutely doesn't listen, doesn't do, doesn't respond whatsoever. He went on and on to talk about the response, the, the feeling or the lack of feeling of, of what it would be to be in a, a mind that his disease affected his mind not at all but every other part of his existence and his way of doing things had been influenced by, by that condition that he was in. Well, verse 21 tells us, there shall no evil happen to the just. There's a lot that goes into that verse, isn't it? God is always on the controlling side of what happens to Job or Peter or you. We know that in this life there will be tribulations, there will be trials, there will be things allowed to come our way. But this life is, is all that the suffering or the evil that comes our way, that's all there is to it. The wicked shall be filled with mischief, not only in this life, but eternally. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. There are many things in the scripture that are told that God is an absolute abomination. He puts a witchcraft in that category. Deviance, perversity, lying to the Lord is an abomination. 
but they that deal truly are his delight. And so because of this, it's one of those areas in our spiritual lives that we have to work at being truthful. The, the, the most godly person has to work at being absolutely truthful and to, because that's the side that the Lord is on. And it, it's, a, it's a part of our fallenness to make ourselves appear better than, than we are, more spiritual than we are, to put ourselves in the best possible light. And we even have ways of, not, of, of, of dealing with things that we don't even consider that lying, you know. But they that deal truly are his delight. Think of the opposite in verse 22 of abomination in the word delight. They're the opposite end of the spectrum. When you delight in something, you thrill over it. It excites you. God is thrilled about truth. Why shouldn't we be? The truth of his word. Why are preachers and teachers not totally dealing with God's word and preaching the whole counsel of God's word? I, Spurgeon, I read recently where he said that, that many preachers spend their whole time avoiding telling their congregations what they need to hear. And he said, I wonder why some sermons are ever preached. They accomplish no eternal thing. No truth was ever exposed, as difficult as it may be. A prudent man, verse 23, another way of describing a wise person, a prudent man concealeth knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaimeth foolishness. What's in the heart will come out, will it not? The heart of man lies foolishness. The hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. Heaviness in the heart of a man maketh it to stoop, but a word maketh it glad. You see again the power of a word? I want you to know that part of the reason that we're told to gather and to meet, we come at the command of the Lord, that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. But part of that, if you read there in, in, in Hebrews, is to exhort and to encourage one another. I hope you see that you've not only come to worship the Lord this morning, to express your praise and your prayers, and to hear truth that will help you in your life, but also just by your very presence and your words to be a blessing to someone else. A good word maketh it glad. That stooping heart. Remember that as we assemble, there are brothers and sisters who have a stooping heart. Heaviness has bowed the heart down. The righteous is more excellent than his neighbor, but the way of the wicked seduceth them. The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting. The, the sin of wastefulness and we certainly live in a wasteful time, don't we, when there's so much available. But we should be careful as believers to be good stewards over everything that comes our ways, our way. But the substance of a diligent man is precious. It's very precious to him. In the way of righteousness is life, and in the pathway thereof there is no death. Well, may the Lord bless his word to us, these important words, words of life, words of... I think of the old uh, song that we sing, wonderful words of life, words of duty, words of beauty. May our words be that. And may the Lord bless the preached and taught word on, in, our, in our church here today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we rejoice in it. We've dealt with some heavy matters and some, some very awesome and mind-provoking, thought-provoking truths. We ask, Lord, that your Spirit teach us these things, correct us, Lord, may our own speech and our words be truthful. May they be that to the use of edifying. May they be mixed with grace and seasoned just as you'd have them to be. May we speak the truth in love. Lord, I pray as your preacher of the gospel that you'd help me to do that just as you would do it if you were standing here. Bless your word today, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.